Well, it really has been a privilege and an honor for me to be here for these three times with you, walking you through this book of Ephesians. So as we draw that brief series to a close, will you join me as we pray together again? Father, once again, we just freely acknowledge before you that apart from you, we can do nothing. I have no power of myself to preach words that would have any benefit for the people, and they cannot hear properly unless you touch their ears. So both my mouth and their ears, we ask that you will anoint, and by the power of your spirit, sanctify and bless what will happen in the next little while as you use your living word to sow those seeds of righteousness in us that will spring up and bear much fruit to honor you and to bless others. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of you might recall seeing the movie uh, Apollo 13. That's one movie I've seen about four or five times periodically. I just love it. Uh, for those who may not know or have forgotten, it's a story of the one mission that had to be aborted because fairly so early in the mission, while stirring one of the liquid nitrogen tanks, some, uh, something ruptured, and they had to basically abort the whole mission. And the whole focus was how to get these people back safely. So they had to shut down everything in the command module and basically reside in the lunar module until it was time to come back in. Now, eventually they had to get back into the, into the command module because that's the only one that could survive the heat of re-entry. And one of the key, or probably the key decision that they had to make was how to restart the batteries on the command module and to restart the computers. Because if you did not do them in a particular sequence, you would exceed the maximum current limitations of the batteries, and they would fry the batteries, and they would literally be lost in outer space forever. Now, you might recall there was also one uh, particular individual, Ken Mattingly, who was supposed to be on the mission originally, but he came into contact with somebody who was carrying measles, and so he, he was booted out from the mission. And he was utterly disappointed and frustrated over this whole thing. But... When this mission got into trouble, Mattingly suddenly discovered what a key role he had been left behind to play. And so he went to Mission Control Center, and on a mock-up of, of the simulator of the command module, he got in there. And his job was to devise the appropriate startup sequence for the command module and to do it within a reasonable amount of time. I mean, several hours, but it was still very short, given the kind of issues we were looking at. And while those three astronauts in space were eagerly waiting, he was working furiously. And he insisted that the conditions inside the command module be exactly as taxing as it would be up there for them because he said, I have to be, they have to be able to do what I do here. And after several hours of this and still not being able to get it, the commander of the mission and mission control center stuck his head into the simulator and said, hey, Ken, do you need a break? I will never forget his answer. You know what he said? He said, if they don't get a break, I don't get a break either. At that moment, sitting in the audience, the first time I saw the movie, it was like, a, for me, you know, the proverbial hair going up on the back of your neck because I suddenly thought of a different mission. I thought of all the international workers from our church whom we had sent out who were working not in the outer darkness of space, but were working in geographically difficult situations among highly resistant people groups, learning very difficult languages and, and doing it all by themselves. And they were depending on us to play our role in supporting them. And I asked myself, Lord, how many of your people here at home have that mentality that Mattingly said, that if they don't get a break, I don't get a break? One man that I read many years ago said, sadly, the prevailing opinion even within the churches here is more to be described like this. Herbert Cain in his book, Wanted World Christian, said this, 
One was either a full-fledged, full-time career missionary, or one was a comfortable, respectable, self-satisfied church member with no direct personal responsibility for the evangelization of the world. If the call came, you went. If it didn't, you were free to stay at home and do your own thing. The people with the call were regarded as particularly spiritual people and were expected to live a life of faith, which meant living from hand to mouth, enduring loneliness, privation, misunderstanding, and rejection. The people without the call were free to go their own way, get good jobs, raise fine families, live in the security of suburbia. Those with the call were expected to make all the sacrifices, while the others were free to enjoy the good things in life bestowed on them by a kind, generous, heavenly father. Now, it's too close home to home to be comfortable. And what I want to do in this final message in Ephesians is to kind of blow that paradigm out completely and to just build a, a, a case, a winner hearing for this assertion. That we're all in it together. Those who are called to go and those who are called to stay are together part of that same team. Bound together by that same mentality. If they don't get a break, I don't get a break. You see, as I understand the scriptures, we're, to use the same metaphor of the space voyage, we are either called to get into the shuttle or we are called to get into the simulator. One of those two things. There isn't a third option for us. And so as we do, as those of us who are called to stay home, and I hear, what kind of dials are there in that simulator? What is our part in this drama of global redemption? And that's what I want to unpack for you in the last part of Ephesians. Usually, these last four verses in Ephesians are completely passed over because the chapter 6 talks about the weapons of our warfare and all those grand warfare metaphors. And then we stop, but some crucial stuff comes after this. For example, in verses 19 and 20, Paul says, And pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, I don't know about you, but if you have a mental picture of the Apostle Paul that we might get from reading the book of Acts, we picture this man of indomitable courage and fearlessness. I mean, he was forever running right into the mouth of the lion, so to speak. He would preach fearlessly no matter what the opposition was, he endured all kinds of physical beatings and harassments and relational challenges, everything. And that would be true. He certainly was that kind of a person. But here's a question. Paul's asking people to pray for him that he would be fearless or bold. Now, what kind of people ask people to pray that they would be fearless? Fearless people or fearful people? Fearless people don't ask for prayer that they would be fearless. But fearful people do. Which means Paul knew what it was to be fearful. So maybe the real secret of this man's boldness wasn't him, but these unnamed Christians in Ephesus who took his request seriously and prayed that God would make Paul a bold man. Then look at the words. Paul says, pray for me that words may be given to me. When you look at the Apostle Paul in his writings and in his letters and his preaching, you see a man of incredible eloquence. He was a master of Greek, master of Hebrew and Aramaic. He knew Roman culture, Greek culture, and Jewish culture. Incredibly brilliant man. And so we are amazed at this man's brilliance. Uh, uh, in, in Acts chapter 13, he's speaking at the synagogue, so he rehearses the whole history of Israel and connects it to Jesus. In Acts 14, he's speaking to farmers who know nothing about these things. So he's talking about wind and rain and weather and, and whatnot, language that they know. And in Acts chapter 18, he's speaking to Greece. And so he draws upon a Greek philosopher from 4th century BC to make his point. Now, we say, wow, man, what an awesome man. Now, that would be true. But what if the real secret wasn't his brilliance? What if the real secret was ordinary Christians in Ephesus saying, Lord, give him words. 
give him words to speak. And thirdly, he says, pray for me that I will explain the mystery of the gospel. Now, why is the gospel mysterious? You and I might say, well, there's no real mystery to it. A child can understand. My daughter was four years old when she made a commitment to Jesus, and she never walked away from that. I mean, after all, you, you ask Jesus to come, your, come into your life, you confess that you're a sinner, that he died on the cross for you. And you know, in one sense, it is that simple. But from another perspective, it is not simple at all. I, I was brought up in a Hindu Brahmin family and became a Christian at the age of 17 in 1963. My father became a Christian 33 years later after hearing the gospel for that long, three days before he died wasn't simple for him. And my mother died last June in Singapore at the age of 91, having heard the gospel from me for 55 years, and she couldn't believe it. Simple? Not really. It requires nothing less than the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit to persuade us of that. That was the invisible divine transaction that had to take place to make something simple that actually is very difficult to understand. In fact, Paul calls it a mystery. You don't understand mysteries. Now, what is it meant by the mystery of the gospel? Missionary John, Don Richardson tells an amazing story uh, of something that he called the redemptive analog in every culture. He was a missionary to the Sawi tribe, a group of headhunters in the Stone Age tribe in Irian Jaya, known as Papua New Guinea nowadays. And as he was befriending these people and uh, set up a rudimentary clinic to help them with their sicknesses and stuff like that. And they were warring tribes that fought with each other. So he was helping wounded people get well. In the meantime, he was also speaking the gospel to them. And he remembers one day when he was telling it in, the, in the story of the passion of Jesus, which is what we are thinking about these days in Lent. And he said when he came to the story of Judas and how Judas betrayed Jesus, everybody burst into applause. Because in that culture, the highest value was deception. If you succeeded in completely deceiving somebody else, you had really succeeded. Now tell me, how do you preach the gospel in a culture where Judas is the hero and Jesus is the scapegoat? He wasn't getting anywhere. Anyway, these tribes continued to be warring with each other. Excuse me. These tribes were continuing to war with each other. And so he said to them, look, if you don't stop fighting, I'm going to leave you. No more medicines and things like that. They wanted all of that. They said, no, 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 don't go. Leave it with us. And so these, the chiefs of two tribes went and talked to each other. And they came to him and said, listen, we've made peace. We've made peace. Uh, we're not going to fight anymore. Please stay with us. And Richardson said to them, why should I believe you? Deception is your highest value. So maybe you're really deceiving me. They said, oh, no, no, no. We do have one custom, though, that if the, if the only child of one chief is given over to the other tribe, so long as that child is alive, we will never fight with each other. It's called the peace child. Instantly, he knew he had the answer. For the next six months, he researched everything he could find, uh, lay his hands on about the peace child, and he preached Jesus as the peace child. Hundreds of them came to Christ. That's a redemptive analog. And then he wrote a book called Eternity in Their Hearts. Fifteen different cultures, each one of them with a unique redemptive analog. That's what Paul is talking about. Pray for me that you will give me the mystery. I wonder where he got those ideas from. Was it because somebody was praying? So you step back from this and look at the Apostle Paul's request. Pray that words will be given me. Pray that I will be fearless. Pray that I will unlock the mystery of the gospel. And he did all of those things. Could it be because it wasn't really up to him, but it was this unnamed group of people who took his request to pray seriously? How many of you have heard the name of a woman named Pearl Good? I can't see up in the balcony because of the lights, but I don't think I see any hands there. I don't see any hands here either. Don't feel too bad. I've been asking this question for 25 years. 
and I've, and I've only found on one occasion two people. I must have asked it of tens of thousands of people by now. Who was Pearl Good? Pearl Good was an elderly lady who lived in a small one-room apartment in Pasadena, California. Many years ago, many decades ago now. And God gave her a burden to pray for a young evangelist whom she became aware of. And so she would pray for him. Sometimes she stayed up all night to pray for him. The Holy Spirit just put such a burden upon her heart to pray for, for this young evangelist. Anyway, Pearl Good eventually died. And at her funeral service, the evangelist couldn't come, so the, uh, his wife came. And so after standing up and giving her tributes to Pearl Good, she pointed at the casket and said, therein lies the secret Oh, therein lies the remains of the secret behind Billy Graham's ministry. How many of you have heard of Billy Graham? How many people has he spoken to? 250 million people. And in recent days, we focused upon that incredible, incredible legacy that he's left behind. Who's heard of Pearl Good? Nobody has. Not in heaven. <laughs> the sequence might be quite different in heaven. That first dial in that simulator is so crucial, intercession. That's the fundamental role we take in being partners with those whom God has sent or whom we have sent overseas. And it's, it's been so from the very beginning. Way back in the book of Genesis, there's a story about Abraham. I, right after his name was changed from Abram to Abraham. By the way, names in the Old Testament and in the scriptures carried a very different significance than you today. Today we often choose names for our children uh, based on all kinds of motives, wanting to spell their name differently than somebody else. And sometimes these children are stuck with those names for the rest of their lives. You know. But that's neither here nor there. It's perfectly okay to do that. But we don't want to miss the fact that in the Bible, names were chosen to communicate destiny and identity. So that every time their parents called them by that name, their destiny and identity would be underlined. Abra Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of many nations. And so this incident happens right after Abram's name was changed to Abraham, father of many nations, which means it was his destiny to bless the nations of the world. And God appears to him and declares to him his intention to destroy this land of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their incredible wickedness. And that sets up the very first recorded prayer in the Bible. Genesis 18, 22, and 23, we read. So the men turned from there, the angels that were going to destroy Sodom, and went to Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And there follows the first recorded prayer in the Bible. Isn't it interesting that the very first expression of Abraham's new destiny as a father of many nations was not to strategize how, how he was going to accomplish his mission, but it was to pray for a nation that needed to hear the news of Yahweh. The first expression of this man's new destiny to be a blessing to the nations of the world was to pray for another nation. Isn't it interesting that the first prayer in the Bible that is recorded is not a prayer for your own people, but it's a cross-cultural prayer. It's a prayer for a nation other than the nation of the person who's doing the praying. Do you know this is the first cross-cultural intercessory prayer, not only in the Bible, but in any literature anywhere in the world? Because other nations, people prayed for their own, they prayed to their gods for themselves. In the Bible, the first prayer is for a nation other than your own. That outward focus and mission, intercession for the Great Commission is woven right throughout the scriptures from Abraham to Paul. And of course, don't forget Jesus right in between. For when the disciples came to Jesus and said, will you teach us to pray? He didn't say, pray this way. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. 
That's not where he started. He said, your kingdom, may your name be hallowed in all the earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Therefore, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. The priority for Jesus was the proclamation of his name and the excellence of the glory of Jesus among the nations of the world. So from Abraham to Jesus to Paul, one thing becomes very clear. The success of every dimension of the Great Commission to take the good news of Jesus to the nations of the world, from Jerusalem here all the way to the ends of the world, depends and is closely connected to the faithful intercession of ordinary Christians, you and I. That's the first dial on the inter, on, in the simulator. Now, Paul continues to give some fuel for that. So as he writes in, in uh, 22 and 23, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Notice those two phrases, how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your heart. Paul doesn't ask just for some general prayer request. He says, no, no, no. I want you to get to know me a lot better than that so that your prayers will be fueled by information that comes in the context of a relationship. Notice how he says, he says pray for me that uh, so that you may know how I am and what I'm doing. It's not just my work that I want you to pray for. I want you to know how I am doing as a person. And by the way, that is so important to me, says Paul. I'm going to send Tychicus. Now, you know, it might seem like a little thing for us when we read, oh, Paul sent one of his, uh, one of his colleagues back to the church in Ephesus. Now, listen. Workers were few and far between in those days. Paul needed these people to help him in his very, very difficult work. But he was willing to release one of his best valuable workers just so that the relationship can be maintained with the churches back at home. Because Paul understood the absolute crucial importance of relationships. Yes, prayer is foundational. But if you do not have the relationship, you're not going to really pray with enthusiasm or with perseverance. And if you look at the book of Acts, you will find that Paul forged these relationships in two ways. First of all, he stayed in people's homes. You see, in the first century, there weren't any mission societies. If somebody had to go somewhere to preach the gospel, we didn't have a denomination. We didn't have people over there getting a welcome committee ready and insurance and medical uh, um, arrangements and if your child gets sick and all that kind of None of that stuff was there. It's important and it is good. But in the first century, Paul was completely and totally dependent upon ordinary Christians and you will also find as you read the book of Acts, he didn't ask, hey, can I come and stay with you? He said, I'm coming, get a room ready for me. Why would he do that? Was he rude? No, Paul just assumed, if you love Jesus, you must be excited about this mission. If you love Jesus, you're as excited about the Great Commission as I am, so of course you're going to help me. And you know what? We don't find a single letter back saying, Paul, actually this is a very inconvenient time for us for you to show up here. <laughs> We're actually in the business of remodeling our living room right now, and it was very difficult for you to come to our place. Now, they were as ready to be taken, grand, uh, taken for granted. Yeah, that's it. Of course you're welcome, Paul. And this was open-ended. I'm not coming just for the weekend. <laughs> I don't know how long I'm going to be there. Come, come, because they had that same sense. So hospitality, when he was close to them, for the purpose of building heart-to-heart -heart relationships. And secondly, 
he stayed in touch with them when he was away. That's why he said, he writes, and every letter he writes, I'm sending so-and-so, I'm telling you this information. He keeps them well informed because he wants to keep the heart-to-heart -heart connection going and fuel. Because Paul understood that without the investment of a heart-to-heart -heart connection in the relationship, you're not going to follow through on the hard work of sustained intercession. This is what I call the ministry of refreshing and encouraging. Many times as Christians, when we go to missions conferences, we hear about praying, giving, and going. I was, to my a total surprise, when I first worked my way through the book of Acts about 20 years ago in this context of global missions, to discover this crucial ministry called refreshing and encouraging. Without which, by the way, the entire missionary effort of the first century would have completely ground to a halt. Paul could not have done what he did apart from all these no-name people with homes we don't know about, small homes, big homes, we have no idea. But their homes were open. And in the homes, they built heart-to-heart -heart relationships. So it happens through two ways. So first of all, hospitality when they are here. And what's the purpose of that? It's to build heart-to-heart -heart connections. You know, so often missionaries come home on furlough. They've spent four years pouring out their lives in very difficult circumstances, apart from families, apart from significant events that they could celebrate that you and I take for granted every year. And often, sometimes they come back and they're given five minutes in a service, quickly squeezed in. And even if they're given a full 40 minutes, as we try to in our church, and I think this one church does too, how much can they share out of four hours? And how, out of four years of ministry? And how can they unburden what's on their hearts? But when they're in your home, over a cup of coffee, over a simple meal, no other distractions, they get to share their heart. And you get to ask those things. So how are you guys doing? How was your marriage? How was the children? What was the most difficult thing? What was easy? What excited you the most? What kind of op opposition did you have? What's it like living in that place? How did we do? Did we do a good job of keeping in touch with you? Are, are, are you eager to go back again? Are you struggling? What are you struggling with in these days? How does the enemy harass you? Where, where are you walking closely with God? You can't answer those, ask those questions here. You can't be asking me questions this morning. You're supposed to listen. But in a setting in a home, when the goal is to build heart-to-heart -heart relationships, you can do that for hours. And my wife and I have had the incredible privilege of doing that so often. And you know, the people who are tremendously blessed are your own children as well. Well, it's a great way to give them a global vision. I remember one time when one of our missionaries was back home, our children were about seven or eight, and in our own family devotion at that time, we were talking about how do you experience God as a living God? And so we asked Miriam that question. Hey, Miriam, how do you experience God as a living God in Romania? Oh, my goodness, she began to tell us stories, I mean, about angelic interventions. I don't have time to walk you through those stories, but my children's eyes were growing this big. They don't hear about them at home. We don't have angelic interventions here to talk about every day. But there on the cutting edge of world missions, it's amazing how God shows up in some spectacular ways. So anyway, that's the first thing, heart-to-heart -heart relationships. And secondly, contact when they are away. to stay up to date on what's happening, on mission critical information. Now, in those days when, when I first got interested in this and learned to start putting some of these things into practice, we still had snail mail. So it would take two months to get news. When we graduated from there to email, and now face-to-face -face communication through Skype and FaceTime and WhatsApp messengers and all that kind of stuff, you can truly build a face-to-face, heart-to-heart relationship with them by staying in contact with them when they are away. 
and for the purpose of the same thing. The purpose is still to listen to their hearts. I remember one time we got a, we got a letter from a, an international worker from our church who was teaching uh, um, school um, in Philippines. And one time she wrote a letter, she said, I'm sorry, this is not going to be a very encouraging, uplifting letter. I don't have a lot of good news to share. But I want you to hear my heart. I've never forgotten that phrase. I want you to hear my heart. I want you to read between the lines. <laughs> and I want you to let me know that you've heard my heart. That was their greatest longing of their heart. And then we write back to them. We communicate back with them. Or we speak back on Facebook. We don't even write anymore. Just all face to face. We can do it. We share with them our hearts. It's a two-way communication. It's not something you do out of a duty. Another international worker from our church once had this experience. He never told me who, which is good because I can then share the story openly. Uh, he said, Sundar, I got a letter from somebody in, in our church. He said, oh, I was at a missions conference recently, and I made a pledge to write three letters. I finished two of them. You're the third. Uh, those kind of letters don't encourage anybody. What kind of letters are you supposed to write? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us. Uh, I don't have this on the overhead, but listen carefully. In 1 Thessalonians, he writes these words. For this reason... When I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. Paul had preached in Thessalonica and people had become Christian. And he didn't know how they were doing. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us, that you long to see us. There's that relational dimension. Just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. Do you catch the importance of that? Here's Paul and his colleagues going through serious difficulties in their mission, even experiencing hardship and persecution. And what encourages them? News back from home that those people care about me. <laughs> That they actually remember the time when I visited them. That they long to see me again. And that they are standing firm in their faith. Paul was tremendously encouraged in his work in the middle of his difficulties because people back home were taking their faith as seriously as he was. I remember speaking at, at a, in a missions conference many years ago in, in Indonesia. And actually, that particular message, I was talking a little bit about the history of our own church's involvement in the Great Commission and the first wave of international workers that we sent out and some of the difficulties and the challenges they had and how we needed to persevere. It, it really wouldn't be one of the most rah-rah messages I've ever preached. But at the end of that, one lady who works in Indonesia came and said, Brother Sundar, thank you so much for such an encouraging message. It was not the adjective I would have used for my sermon. So I said to her, what encouraged you about it? She said it had nothing to do with success or failure. It had to do with oneness in the mission. The fact that you and your church were taking our, our work so seriously as we are, that's what encourages them. So as you build these heart-to-heart -heart relationships and have contact with them when they're away, don't just listen to their heart, which is important. Share your heart with them. Tell them how you are growing. Hey, we've been going through an interesting series in our church on Ephesians and John's Gospel or... Um, we just celebrated our 40th anniversary in our church, and here are some wonderful things that God did. I have a team that just came back from Haiti, and I believe they did an amazing job there. And You should know what's happening in our church. And you know, here's what's happening in my family, and here's what's what I'm doing. And boy, I'm, I'm getting involved in the service ministry downtown. I never used... That's the kind of stuff you need to talk to them about. How is Jesus working in your life? Then they will be encouraged. 
because you are taking your life with Jesus as seriously as they are taking it over there. You get to what get the point? That's how you do refreshing and encouraging. By the way, meaningful gifts are another amazing thing. I was in that same trip to Indonesia. I was staying in the home of a couple who were both school teachers. They're te teaching the missionary kids. And so Kathy, who's the name, my hostess's name, she showed me some porcelain figures on, on her mantelpiece. And one particular one, she said, boy, I cried when I got this. Well, I kind of looked at it and said, well, it wouldn't make me cry. No, what was about it that made you cry? She thought, let me tell you the story. She said, first of all, notice that this, this, this uh, uh, porcelain figure is holding daffodils. She said, that's a May basket. And daffodils are my favorite flowers. And every May in my church, I used to make May baskets and distribute it to all the women in the church. This, they knew that this first May would be a very difficult May for me. Secondly, she said, I, I collect uh, porcelain figures by this particular artist. You see, so much thought had gone into that gift that she'd made her cry. Now I was crying. As opposed to, oh, women's missionary prayer followers, it's time to send a gift to so-and-so. Can you go and be, please buy a gift for $50 and send it on? Not that kind of stuff. That, doesn't, that won't bring anybody to tears. But this kind of thoughtful gift. And by the way, anytime you minister to their children, their hearts go way up. So when you remember their children, remember their birthdays, spending special gifts to them. All of those are ways in which you directly build into their spirits this this encouraging ministry, so they carry on this very difficult work that we sent them out to. All right, so that's the second dial on your simulator. Intercession and investment. But the way they work is this way. It is investment that produces interest. Just like put money in a bank, you get interest. So you invest in a relationship, you get interest. That interest then fuels intercession that is shaped by information. That's how these four eyes work together. Investment draws interest, fuels intercession, shaped by information. But here's the perhaps the most important question of all. All this is only going to happen if we actually get into the simulator, right? What is it that's going to get us there on this journey? Well, what happened to Mattingly? Ken Mattingly. He was so disappointed that he wasn't on the mission, that he was sulking and disappointed. And, and the last fade out, and he's in his living room, in his dens, beer cans all around him, unshaven stubble on his face, just wallowing in self-pity. And just then he was watching TV, vegging in front of the TV, when he said, we interrupt for a special news broadcast. He said, ah. And he just turned it off and went off to bed. And so he missed what was happening. But when, when they got into trouble, Manningly was the expert. And so NASA sent a couple of people to his home. They walked into his room, pulled the curtains back, let sunlight in, shook him from his head. And he said, What's the matter? what are you doing? As soon as they told him what was the matter, he was a changed man. Gone was his disappointment. Gone was everything else. Why? Because he was on the same mission as they were. Their mission out there mattered to him. That oneness in the mission said, okay, I'm in the simulator, and I'm going to stay there as long as they did. They don't get a break, I don't get a break. Unless we have that sense of that oneness, we're never going to get into the simulator. And so that's, that's the third thing I want to talk about, which is integration. You see, it all has to do with how we see our conversion. Our, our tendency, especially in evangelical circles, is to see our conversion as some choice that we made. Well, I prayed to receive Christ. I walked up at a Billy Graham crusade. I did this at Alpha. My mother, all of those things are good. And yes, there is. We do make a choice. Choose ye this day whom you will serve. That's true. 
Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. But that's just the human side of it. Just like I said, the mystery of the simple gospel, when you look at it from the other side, shows how difficult it is. In the same way, our conversion from God's perspective isn't anything about a choice that we made. It's him choosing us. Paul says in Philippians, he said, my brothers and sisters, I, have not count, I don't count myself to have arrived. He said, I have not yet taken a hold of that for which Jesus Christ has taken a hold of me. Isn't that interesting? Paul sees his conversion not purely in terms of some choice that he made, but God reaching down and plucking him up and says, Paul, I want you for my purposes. And you say, ah, Sunday, isn't that just semantics? It's just this theological nitpicking. No, no, no. It has massive implications. I'll tell you why. Because so long as we think of our conversion merely in terms of some choice that we made, Jesus and his purposes will remain one choice among many others. My career, my spouse, my hobbies, how I spend my money, everything. Oh, he gets his one and a half hours on Sunday. Of course, I'll give him his one and a half hours on Sunday. He's part of the things I've chosen in my life. He's not just a part of the mix, but that's what happens when we think of it that way. But if you think of our conversion as Jesus taking a hold of his life, then all these other purposes get subsumed under this huge purpose of Jesus' purposes for us. So Christianity, every part of our life then becomes a so that. Then who we marry, how we relate to our children, how we raise them, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we spend all of those things is all integrated under the Great Commission. Our lives become what I've called a so that Christianity. That's why Jesus taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer in that way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then, then, therefore, so that, that, so that I can play my part in that mission, give me my daily bread, which of course has to do with work and all of those things. Forgive us our trespasses, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. You see, the, you see the sequence? That's integration, when we get a handle on that. This is why John Piper, in a memorable sentence that I memorized, said it. He said, this is why prayer fails. This is why prayer fails in the hands of many Christians. He says, we have taken what God intended as a wartime walkie-talkie to stay in touch with command headquarters to receive marching orders for the battle, and we have turned it instead into a domestic intercom to make life more comfortable in the den. Can I say that again? We have taken what God intended to be used as a wartime walkie-talkie to stay in touch with command headquarters to receive marching orders for the battle, and we have turned it instead into a domestic intercom to make life more comfortable in the den. We've taken the Lord's Prayer, and we focus on the second half of it. Give me today my daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. Lead us out of temptation. Deliver us from evil. Full stop. No, it starts with our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let me give you a couple, a quick one, one or two quick examples in the time that I have of, of a difference between an inti integrated and an unintegrated life. I'm thinking of a businessman. Uh, every year he in Florida he went to every in February he went to Florida to play golf. Not bad. I wouldn't mind going to Florida in February either, given the kind of winters we have here. But I don't play golf. If you play golf, that's good. Nothing wrong with it. But he chose it every year to coincide with a missions conference in the church, so that he could miss it. He had nothing to do with it. Contrast that with a businessman I met in Thailand once. He was a traveling pharmaceutical statesman who lived in Oregon. So I said, what are you doing here? Oh, he said, you know, uh, the pastor of our church uh, was coming to this conference. There were 600 missionaries. And he said to me, look, we need a, we need a uh, bass guitarist for our worship team. 
these missionaries haven't worshipped in their own language for a whole year. So he took nine days off from work, paid his own money, went all the way to Thailand, and quietly in the back of the worship team where no one was noticing him, was playing his bass guitar. See the difference between the two perspectives? The first one was interested in himself and said, I need to get far away from this mission stuff. That, that's a boring week. I don't need to be there in church. The second one said, oh, no, if I can be used playing a bass guitar in the back of the stage so 600 missionaries who are giving their life to work in difficult places can worship Jesus for a week, I can put my money, I can put nine days of my vacation and go over there. See the difference between the two perspectives? It's not what you do. It's what you think when you're doing or whatever you're doing. Here's the second perspective, a retired cop. And I talk about retirement. I've talked about this long before I retired because I knew one day I was going to and I wanted to make sure that I didn't make that mistake. John Piper calls retirement one of the most virulent diseases in North America because it's, 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 it's disengagement from everything that matters to coasting. The Bible knows absolutely nothing about retirement. Caleb, at the age of 85, said, give me the hill country. I'm as strong at 85 as I was at 40. Give me the hill country. So I met a retired cop in Baltimore, uh, from Baltimore, in, in Thailand. He was there. So I said, what are you doing here? He said, oh, he said, I, was, I used to be a cop. He said, but now I'm here providing security. You see, in Thailand, children are at risk. You got to be careful. These 600 missionaries had 250 kids with them. And the children's wing was securely guarded under this man's direction. I was the featured speaker there. I could not get entry into that place. They were out there to protect the kids. And then I said, what are you doing after that? He said, oh, I'm going up north to a farm. I said, how come? He said, a couple of years ago, I met a, I met a young woman in this hotel who, who's a servant, and she's very poor. But her family, they have a chicken farm up north, and they use the proceeds from that farm to help their children. He said, I know a lot about chicken farming. So I've been going up there after this conference every year to help with a chicken farm. Now that's using retirement in an integrated way. And maybe we won't all be chicken farmers of cops. But we can be something that God wants us to and related. But it will only happen if we say, this is for that. This is for so that. So can I leave you with a couple of steps? Next step. If you're already involved in some way through one of these dials in the community, add the other ones, integration, intercession, investment. But if, you have, if you're nowhere on the agenda, start small. You're not responsible for the whole world. Just start small. Choose, choose one international worker or family from this church. Start, maybe it's a country that you love. Maybe it's a cause that you love. Maybe it's someone that you already know. If you don't know anyone, Ken and Claire Bradley from this church who are very close friends of mine who have been working in Turkey. Great place to start with them if you want. Then initiate and maintain a relationship. When they are here, have them over to your home. Take them out for dinner. Listen to their hearts. And when they go away, stay in touch with them through Facebook, through Skype. Listen to their hearts. Share your hearts with them. Forge that heart-to-heart -heart relationship. And then take the fuel that comes from that and pray for them as an individual, as a family, as a church. What a commitment to make at the beginning of your 40th anniversary. Great way to recalibrate your whole church to the central calling of bringing the glory of Jesus to the nations of the world. Let's pray together. Lord, again, we're just quite aware of the fact that we are not sufficient for these things. I mean, even, even to integrate our lives, even to get that so that mentality, something only you can do, Father. I mean, you chose us. So now, please, work out your purposes in us. Left to ourselves, we're going to drift off. We're going to live that unintegrated. We're going to slouch like Mattingly did. 
vegetating in front of a TV maybe, or, or something else, our own personal pursuits, Father. Not unless you open our eyes to see what it is we've been chosen for. And Lord, above all, I pray that you will quicken faith within our hearts to believe that you don't need us for this, which means you're asking us to do this because we need to do it. That this is the pathway to joy. That our pursuit of your glory among the nations is the same as our pursuit for our joy. Thank you. In Jesus' name.